to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And this is our final episode. After 34 episodes of varying quality. Yeah, a long journey. <laughs> Many mistakes and crimes were had. We did it. It felt like only yesterday that Tim said, I want to do a podcast, but I don't want to do it alone. And I said, I guess I'll do it too. <laughs> and here we are, 35 episodes later. Uh, and we did so many episodes before we even released them, so it's been almost a full year's worth of work. Yeah, we started not that long into quarantine, and quarantine hits a full year just around now for almost all of us. Yep. So, here it is. This is quite a challenge, but we are going to do our best to rank every Akira Kurosawa movie. It's very hard because so many of these movies are so different. Yeah, many of them are good. They're all basically different. Yeah, like, it's not like ranking, like, every Marvel movie or something, where there's a lot of similar elements, so you could see where it's done better or worse in some things. Here, it's like, all the movies are very clearly made by the same guy, but in terms of story and structure, they are all wildly different. Imagine in your head trying to mentally compare Kage Musha to The Most Beautiful. It is insane. <laughs> this is how you make good films look bad, comparing them to great films. And that's what we're about to do, folks. Sakura Kurosawa ranked. For all you listeners out there, you're getting two rankings for the price of one. Yep. If you want to use advice to inform your own watching, probably use Tim's ranking. I'll tell you now. <laughs> my ranking's not that bad, but you're going to get some weird impressions if you follow my list. I'm sure there's going to be some hot takes in here, definitely. My takes are scorching and miserable. <laughs> I'm excited to tell you. I am going to try my best to rank these as objectively as possible. Yes, Tim's ranking is objective. Mine is personal. Yeah, there's not going to be any numbers out of order. These is going to be my fives, then my sixes, then my sevens, then my eights, then my nines, then my tens. Yes, which I did not do. And we don't know each other's rankings ahead of time, by the way. So this is going to be a surprise for us. Yeah, this will be a surprise to all of us. <laughs> we'll get started with mine first, and then we'll do Chris's. I am also going to be doing superlatives for my list for some of the films where I feel this specific things to call out. Also, we have some honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah, I have those too. This is really a 31 film list, but we'll add uh, 32 and 33 on to the very end. So 33, we're going to have to put Those Who Make Tomorrow. Obviously unrankable because it's unavailable and its very existence is in question. Does not exist. <laughs> yeah. And even if it were available, Kurosawa only directed 10 minutes of it. So it would be pretty tough to definitively rank it with the movies where he had near to full creative control. Yeah. Like, obviously, that's... We are not the same. The other honorable mention will have to be Uma, which, while we were able to find a copy of it, we were not able to find one with subtitles, and so we cannot, in good conscience, rank it among Kurosawa's completed works. Also, like Those Who Make Tomorrow, he was a co-director rather than the sole director, but unlike Those Who Make Tomorrow, it is theoretically watchable and thus higher on the list. We'll get to my list when we get to it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god, okay. So now we're hitting my 5 out of 10s, and these are the only ones I would actually say are, like, definitively bad movies. Pretty much all of these are good, but unfortunately at the very bottom of my list, I gotta call out our boy, Sanchiro Sugata Part 2. Huge mistake. <laughs> Awful placing. I resent this 100%. <laughs> this is widely considered to be one of, if not the worst, Akira Kurosawa film, and with good reason. His evident disinterest in the picture, combined with its convoluted plot, sloppy editing, and bad propaganda, give the film a level of quality that Kurosawa had not dipped to before and would not dip to again. Sancho Sugata Part 2 is, however, the one Kurosawa film that is so bad it's good, and can be an unintentionally fun watch that we actually highly recommend. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so for Sancho Sugata Part 2, the superlatives I'm awarding it are Best So Bad It's Good Film and Worst Prima Fune Film. Fair. On to number 30, I have Scandal. It's wild <laughs> that you put it there. It sucks. <laughs> Scandal is a film I didn't feel like worked at all. It gets a leg up on Sancho Sugata Part 2 for being made more competently. For being a movie. <laughs> but its story is just as nonsensical, honestly. Kurosawa treads on a lot of the same ground that he does in a lot of his other films, and the script is incredibly flawed. Its one redeeming factor is Takashi Shimura's unique performance, so when he suddenly becomes the main character of the film, he at least does a good job. But overall, I think it's the worst film that he and Toshiro Mifune are a part of. It has Toshiro Mifune on a bike, giving their Christmas tree to children. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And so for superlatives, I am going to award it the best Takashi Shimura performance, which people might have thought would go to Akiru, but honestly, his performance in here is really great. I think I agree with that. By definition, it is also the worst Mifune film. My last 5 out of 10 film goes to number 29, The Idiot. <sighs> <laughs> Even if it weren't mercilessly cut by Shochiku, The Idiot still has major problems that would put it low on the list. Kurosawa's love for Dostoevsky got the best of him, and this adaptation is simultaneously too faithful to its source material while also failing to capture the essence of the book. Though it boasts impressive scale and performances, The Idiot's a difficult film to sit through, and it's an unfortunate misstep because it really could have been one of Kurosawa's best. On the bright side, I do believe that our review of The Idiot is our best episode, because Chris reading the novel before watching this movie really helped us make sense of a lot of the weird things that are going on, and I think that we really thoroughly explained why this movie just doesn't work. Yep, I did that for you, listener. So, superlatives, best Sancho's Boys episode, which isn't actually about the movie itself. It gets nothing. I would say it might be the movie that he tried the hardest on to fail so gloriously. <laughs> Because he really wanted it to be good, and he did not succeed. I really wanted it to be good. You, you really wanted it to be good. I really wanted it to be good. good. <laughs> I wrote a fucking 700-page novel for that. But yeah, I'm glad I did. Now we're hitting my 6 out of 10s, which are fine movies. They're not great, not terrible. Number 28, I have The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, which I think you're not going to agree with at all. No, obviously not. It's movie rules. Now, TMWTOTTT would certainly rank higher on my list if it felt like a more complete film. It's Kurosawa's shortest film, and is more or less one long, and mostly good, scene. But those unfamiliar with its source material, like I was when I first watched it, may find themselves disappointed. The insertion of the over-the-top comedic porter in an otherwise very formal film is jarring, and will work for some, and it worked for Chris, but it really did not work for me. It was amazing. I thought it was really good. <laughs> At number 27, I have The Most Beautiful. At its core, it's a propaganda film, and by that metric, The Most Beautiful is successful in what it sets out to do. It's also a lot more humane than a lot of propaganda films, which was definitely a Kurosawa touch. It's his rare female-led film, and allowed him to play with the movement of groups, which I think is great. But ultimately, it exists to push an agenda and is not heavy on narrative. In retrospect, The Most Beautiful is actually the first Kurosawa film to be structured more episodically, which huh. is what a lot of the films in the latter third of his filmography are like. Yeah, it's definitely true. So for superlatives, best propaganda film, beating out Sanshiro Sugata Part 2. Also which is <laughs> bad propaganda. <laughs> well, maybe. This is at least, like, propaganda done well. I don't even know what the message of Sanshiro Sugata Part 2 is. Yeah, I'm convinced that the Japanese women work hard and want to. That's for sure. <laughs> Number 26, I Live in Fear, or Record of a Living Being. I Live in Fear is a strange film due in no small part to Toshiro Mifune playing a character more than twice his age in not always convincing makeup. It has its moments, but ultimately it feels unfocused, repetitive, and hinges on a premise that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
it ranks higher than the other films simply for being a more cohesive narrative whole. And at number 25, this one may be also so bad it's good, but that would imply that it's bad, which it isn't. Song of the Horse. <laughs> Absolutely fucking banger film. How dare you put this at 25? It's higher on my list, I'm sure of it. <laughs> it's the highest of my sixes, but I can't put it higher than a seven. No, that's fair. Akira Kurosawa's sole venture into the worlds of both television and documentary filmmaking is surprisingly relaxing. Song of the Horse doesn't necessarily live up to its lost masterpiece label on the back <laughs> of the bootleg DVD box. Matter of opinion. But Kurosawa's quirky, quote-unquote, visual poem boasts some excellent equine footage, a great score, and somehow manages to feature a scene more shocking than anything else in his filmography. For superlatives, it gets Best Documentary, by default. Yep, deserves it. Also, by definition, worst post-Mafune film, which I do not want to actually have to put on it, but I guess it theoretically is. And also, most shocking moment with the horse birth. Now, at the 7 out of 10s, we get the good but flawed films. At number 24, Dodeskaden. Dodeskaden introduced us to a lot of Akira Kurosawa's unique methods of experimenting with color while juggling various storylines of varying quality. It has its moments, but suffers from strangely unmotivated editing, drastic tonal shifts, and a bloated runtime. Number 23, The Lower Depths. The Lower Depths is one of Kurosawa's most self-contained and plot-light films, and effectively transposes Maxim Gorky's play to the Edo period. It's pretty stagnant, and I think Kurosawa's at his best when he's working with a more narrative focus, but the film is populated by some really good lessons and characters, especially the underappreciated Bokuzen Hidari's performance as Kahe. He's really great in that movie, and he mostly usually plays bit parts in a lot of other Kurosawa films. He is amazing in that movie. At number 22, we return to our boy, Sanshiro Sugata, the original film, the one that started it all, except Uma. Yeah, except Uma. <laughs> Oops. Kurosawa's strong debut introduced him to the world and introduced us to our favorite titular himbo. Sanchiro Sugata gets a bit of a pass for being a first film and for losing some of its footage to the Japanese censors, so some of its shortcomings aren't necessarily the director's fault. Nevertheless, I can't put the film higher since a superior version of the film cannot be seen, but even in its reduced form, it still shows a lot of promise for one of cinema's giants. You say a superior version of the film can't be seen, but Sanchiro Sugata 2 was right there, actually. <laughs> Listener, please watch both of those movies, one after the other. It's the best Kurosawa experience you can have. At number 21, Dreams. Dreams is visually gorgeous, but narratively uneven. The premise of bringing Akira Kurosawa's subconscious to life is fantastic, but also shares the same shortcomings as many other anthology films. Some of the dreams are great, some needed trimming, and others treaded on the same material as ones that came before them and made them feel a lot more redundant than they should have been. This is an interesting case where I agree that some should be replaced, but I think different ones than you. Yeah. And for superlatives, I am going to award it Most Experimental, which I originally was going to give to Dodeska Den, but I do think that the whole concept of dreams and so much of the imagery is much more experimental than Kurosawa ever gets to do. Yeah, I agree. So, Most Experimental Film, if you're into that, even though it's still pretty narrative. At number 20, Rhapsody in August. Kurosawa's penultimate film is one of his smallest and most traditional-feeling movies, but that's not a bad thing. Rhapsody in August definitely has its problems, specifically its ending and muddied central conflict, but it's also a really beautiful film and creates a really believable fictional family, which is a major testament to Kurosawa's strength as a director, even in his old age. For superlatives, I'm going to award it the best nuclear anxiety film. It's definitely better than the other one. These superlatives get very specific. <laughs> Between Rhapsody in August, Dreams, and I Live in Fear, those are the three main films that tackled nuclear devastation directly. I think this one is the best at it. Yeah, it's no contest. 
At number 19, kind of similar to Rhapsody in August, because they're both incredibly hard to find and not available on Criterion, <laughs> is The Quiet Duel. Quiet Duel is another small-scale drama that I think has a fantastic premise, though it does center around a character withholding information, which can be frustrating because he always has an out if he just explains a situation. But nevertheless, it has really great moments. I think it's got a great opening. It's really tense opening scene. And Toshiro Mifune's monologue in it is one of his best moments in the whole retrospective, I think. You're referring to the monologue where he breaks down because he hasn't had sex and can't? Yes, I am. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Number 18, I have Drunken Angel. Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune's first of 16 collaborations is our first step into a larger world of filmmaking. Each of their strengths comes out on full display in one of the first ever Yakuza films. Drunken Angel's ripe with social commentary and dynamic cinematography, but does suffer from a lot of repetition, especially considering its short runtime. Number 17, Dersu Yuzawa. <laughs> I see you shaking your head. 17? Ridiculous. It feels bad, but that's just because there's 16 other really great films. Fair. Dersu Yuzawa is certainly one of Akira Kurosawa's most viscerally beautiful and moving pictures. 17. <laughs> Maxime Munzuk's performance as the titular hunter is amazing, as is the 70mm cinematography, especially with its weird vibrating color stock. The reason I do not believe that this film ranks among Kurosawa's very best is because its other central character, Vladimir Arsenev, is completely devoid of personality, and the film's pacing and various detours leave a lot to be desired on my part. Ultimately, it feels like a film that deals more in subtext than in text, and Kurosawa has shown us that he can handle both together better. For superlatives, by default, best foreign language film. Foreign to him, not to us. These are all foreign language films to us. Now we've reached my 8 out of 10s, the very good movies. At number 16, One Wonderful Sunday. The fact that this is right above Dersu Uzla is a crime, but don't worry, I will do far worse crimes in my review. It definitely felt weird, but again, the numbers don't lie. This one really surprised me. I think One Wonderful Sunday is a really charming, self-contained film full of great scenes. I really like seeing Kira Kurosawa try his hand at neorealism at the same time it was being done in Italy, which is really cool to see the same thing happening on two opposite sides of the globe. It does have some weird or strained scenes, but I found myself really caring about the two leads and loved seeing how their opposite personalities mesh together. Number 15, Matadayo. Not yet. I don't think I've ever seen a film with more palpable vibes, and they're good vibes. Matadayo is a great meta-celebration of Kurosawa's filmography, showcasing many of his strengths and a couple of the weaknesses of his style. We're all the teacher-students, and his final lesson is enjoyable and deeply moving. For superlatives, I'm going to award it Best Biopic. There's only a few of them, I think this is the most successful one. Kagemusha is a little debatable because it's based on history, but the film is mostly about a fictional character, or a potentially fictional character. It's only covering the very end of Shingen Takeda's life rather than his entire life, so I'm not going to count that a full biopic. I also would like listener to know that I say biopic, but that's neither here nor there. And number 14, Stray Dog. There is nowhere we can go that Akira Kurosawa has not already been, and that includes the buddy cop genre. Stray Dog is one of the first and best of its kind with a gripping opening and impressive scale to see its slightly unrealistic premise through. Like many of his other works, it feels too long and Kurosawa goes a bit overboard with the montages, but he always makes a solid noir. Yeah, absolutely. And for superlatives, I am going to award it Best Opening. I think the opening of this film is really fantastic. I remember the dog, that's for sure. It really throws us right in when his gun gets stolen and we're all of a sudden in the chase and we're getting all this intercutting scenes, setting up a lot of things that are going to come up like an hour and a half later. It's really, really, really good. Number 13, No Regrets for Our Youth. 
Donald Ritchie called it Akira Kurosawa's first perfect picture. And while I won't go that far, it's definitely underrated and worthy of re-examination. As Kurosawa's first post-war film, he was able to express himself in ways that he could never before. And the effect of that freedom is evident. Kurosawa's first star, our boy Susumu Fujita, gives his best performance here, as does Setsuko Hara, the Joker, who's allowed to show more range than she typically does in her other collaborations with Yasujiro Ozu or Mikio Naruse. No Regrets for Our Youth can be a bit boring at times, and its ending is a bit questionable, but the film is nonetheless a thought-provoking hidden gem. And for superlatives, I am awarding it the best Primafune film. Completely agree. The best Susumu Fujita performance. Completely. Well. <laughs> best Setsuko Hara performance. And I'm going to say it's the most underrated Kurosawa film. Yeah. A lot of these are like, maybe people haven't seen it, but they know it's good. Or they can assume, oh, that's definitely going to be a good one. No one even hears about this one. Yeah, yeah. At number 12, The Bad Sleep Well. This loose adaptation of Hamlet takes a while to get cooking, but by the end, it is completely absorbing. Kurosawa Productions got off on a strong note with this angry capitalist critique that stumbles in a few places, but still delivers another solid noir. The Bad Sleep Well has what I think may be Toshiro Mifune's best performance. Mm -hmm. He shows tons of range from unbridled fury to cold calculation to deep heartbreak. He really, really does a great job here. So for superlatives, best Toshiro Mifune performance and coolest title. Unless you're counting the alternate title, The Worse You Are, The Better You Sleep, which is the worst <laughs> title. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that's, he really he nailed it on the head with his choice. At number 11, Kagemusha, The Shadow Warrior. The scale of this film is something to be admired. Kagemusha feels like no other movie Kuro Kurosawa made before. The gorgeous colors and production design of the many castles and armies is awe-inspiring, and I have a well-documented love for the way Kurosawa uses shadows in The Shadow Warrior. Tatsuya Nakadai gives his best performance here because he gives two of them. While the titular character leaves a bit to be desired in terms of development, Kagemusha is nonetheless a thorough and calculated tragedy. For superlatives, best production design. It's obvious contender is Ron, but I'm giving it to Kagemusha because Kagemusha did it first. Fair. Totally. Also, best Tatsuya Nakadai performance, for the reasons I just mentioned. And I'm going to say best use of color. I think this is where he plays with color the most, especially with like the dream sequence, all the stuff he's doing with the colored armies, the stock he's using, one of his best rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> very good. All very good. Now we've reached my nine out of tens, the great movies. At number 10, Sanjiro. While it doesn't quite reach the heights and seamless narrative cohesion of Yojimbo, Sanjiro still manages to be an excellent satire of its own genre. It's one of Kurosawa's funniest films and features his best fight choreography, especially in its unforgettable ending. Also, Toshiro Mifune was never hotter than he was here. And so for superlatives, best fight choreography and hottest Toshiro Mifune. That's a, that's a coveted one. <laughs> At number 9, The Hidden Fortress. It's a shame that it's overshadowed by Star Wars' legacy, because The Hidden Fortress is a really great film in its own right. Pacing problems aside, it's a fun and funny adventure with memorable characters and images. This is the film that kickstarted what I think is the single best sequence of Kurosawa's films. You know, notice a lot of those films I haven't even mentioned yet. Now at number 8, I have Rashomon. I know that even at number 8 out of 31 33, this one is lower on my list than many others. And I do have some problems with it, but I won't deny that it's a fantastic film that everyone should watch. Rashomon marks a huge step forward for both Kurosawa and Japanese cinema as a whole. It feels more confidently and smartly directed than any of the films that preceded it, and it's filled to the brim with philosophical ideas that kept us talking for our single longest episode. 
We talked almost the length of the movie. It deserves it. For Superlatives, I am going to award it Best Use of Weather. That's oh, cool. a big thing for all of Kurosawa's films. That's hard, yeah. Most of these films deserve it, but I think that one really deserves it. There's a lot of competition, but I think the crazy rainstorms at the Rashomon Gate and then the contrast with the sun and the extreme heat of the actual forest scenes, really, really great stuff. At number seven, I have Ikiru. Another film I wish I could have a little higher because it does move me to tears more than almost any other movie. But truthfully, I've never liked the way this film was bifurcated, and I don't think I ever will. But it hardly matters, because Ikiru is still one of Kurosawa's most powerful films by any metric. To me, it's the epitome of world cinema. An eastern man adapting western literature with a deeply humanist message that unites us all, and is completely universal. It's a film that breaks your heart, but builds it back even bigger, and makes you want to go out and do great things. And so few films ever have such a strong effect on their viewers. For Superlatives, I'm awarding it the best ending... This ending makes me cry every single time. It is so, so strong. I'm also going to award it best montage for the wipe montage when those women are getting sent around to all the different parts of the government bureaucracy. It's fun and is really effective as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Though I think best montage goes to Stray Dog, but still. <laughs> That's a two-hour montage. Yeah, Stray Dog for the film. <laughs> Number six, Throne of Blood. I've always had a soft spot for this one because it's my very first Kurosawa film, but Throne of Blood is so good that it hardly needs any special treatment from me. There are quibbles here and there with the way some of the stuff in the movie is done, but overall, setting Macbeth in feudal Japan works miraculously well. The film is so moody, so eerie, and Toshiro Mifune and Isuzu Yamada are so good that Kurosawa still makes one of the most well-known morality tales suspenseful and visually stunning. Superlatives? I'm saying it's his most atmospheric film. All right, now we're hitting the top five. My 10 out of 10s. Woo! Amazing movies, true masterpieces, Kino. Number five, High and Low. Debatably the best police procedural of all time, Kurosawa ratchets up the tension in High and Low in ways incomparable to any other picture. This is a film about duality, which is why the bifurcated nature works better than Akiru and a lot of the other films. The first half is so tense and morally complex, and the second half is so thorough and deeply satisfying that it results in a nearly flawless film. For superlatives, I am awarding it the best contemporary film and best noir, beating out The Bad Sleep Well and Stray Dog, all of which are in the top 15. At number 4, hurts me to have to say it, but Redbeard. Redbeard is Akira Kurosawa's true manifesto on humanism. Over and over, we're shown the deep pains felt by others and how someone can do good in an evil world. It's a large film that demands a lot from the audience, but seldom does a film ever give back more in return. On every level, visually, audibly, emotionally, the film is a masterpiece. And after sitting through every one of Akira Kurosawa's films for this podcast, I am officially ready to call Redbeard my personal favorite. I think that's because it's such a powerful story of a young man finding his place, and I relate to that very heavily. It does what Akiru does even better than Akiru. And that's tough to say, because Akiru is so good at what it does. And uh, Criterion, if you're listening, and I know you're not, please give us that 4K restoration. We, this this is movie is begging for Blu-ray. Come on. I own a DVD of it. It's got the old line logo. Give me that scroll and see. And so for superlatives, my personal favorite Akira Kurosawa film, I'm going to say best musical theme. Mm. Although, I don't think best overall soundtrack, but I think Masaru Sato's main theme for Redbeard is so good. And I'm going to say the best adaptation of Japanese literature for the uh, Shigeru Yamamoto stories that it's based off of. At number three, Yojimbo. 
This really has all of Akira Kurosawa's strengths on full display, and he's in perfect synergy with his frequent collaborators. Kazuo Miyagawa shoots the film better than any other, Toshiro Mifune's Sanjiro character is his most badass role, Masaru Sato delivers his best score, and Kurosawa's screenplay is so tight, clever, and funny. There's a reason that Yojimbo is the film that keeps getting ripped off, because some movies are just that good. Superlatives? Best Cinematography. There's some contenders, and it is a black and white film, so he doesn't get to experiment with color and all that, but man, it is just an incredibly shot film. And best Masaru Sato score, and I love this one, best cameo for Susumu Fujita's cameo as uh, the guy who runs away. <laughs> uh, amazing. Earlier when you said his best performance, I was like, are you sure it's not Yojimbo? I considered it, but he's, he's, in, that, he's in one scene in that movie. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But... Behind the curtain, I've been saying, I find it so weird that Kurosawa never cameoed in any of his movies. Yeah, it is odd. You think not even once, in the, at the end of his life, the movies are about his dreams and him, and still, doesn't cameo. He made a whole movie about him, and he's not in it. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, Ron. Even in old age, Akira Kurosawa still had it in him. He made his largest film at 75 years old, and he made it about as perfectly as a picture can be. Every second of Ron is put to good use, and it's full of amazing imagery and colors. Its battles go beyond anything Kurosawa ever made, and his final Shakespeare adaptation was his best yet. A lot of superlatives for this one. Best post-Mafune film, best adaptation of Western literature slash best Shakespeare film. Kind of go hand in hand, because Shakespeare is already the best of Western literature. Yeah, certainly for Kurosawa. I'm going to say best action. I know I gave Sanjiro best fight choreography, but the armies going at each other in this movie is incomparable. And I'm saying largest film. We debated between this and Kagemusha, but I think this one just very slightly beats it out because of what he does with the armies, not simply just how many human beings are on the screen. But it's really splitting hairs with that. And number one. So what could the last one be? I really, really did not want to put this one at the top of the list because it's literally the top of the list of every other Kurosawa ranking. It's okay, it's not on mine. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a reason for it. Seven Samurai is Akira Kurosawa's best film, because it's one of the best movies of all time. A lot of these are, but this one is so viscerally enjoyable, entertaining, funny, and tragic. Every scene is phenomenal. The fact that Kurosawa is able to make each moment and character feel important for three and a half hours is a reminder of why Akira Kurosawa is, and always will be, one of the greats. Superlatives? Best film. I think it's his best directed film. I think it's got the best overall soundtrack slash Fumio Hayasaka score. Both he and Masaru Sato deserve to be separated because they were both such great composers on their own and had so many films under their belt. But his score here is fantastic. I think it's also his best edited film, which is surprising considering how long it is, but every scene is cut perfectly. There are films that were designed more like comedies, like Sanjiro. I think this is still his funniest film. I think it's his best original screenplay. And this is the best Mufune film, best film he's in, best Jidaigeki period piece, and whew, that is my ranking. I hope you all enjoyed Tim's beautiful polished ranking. Mine is not going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am very, very curious here. I am scared, but to each their own. Will I edit these into a different order? I guess you'll have to listen to the podcast to see. I don't have numbers, so you probably can get away with that. Chris, I can't believe that you and I had the exact same ranking. Put Uma as the best. <laughs> All right, listener. So it's time for mine. I promise this will be pretty quick, pretty casual. At the bottom two, I once again have the two honorable mentions, but I do switch up the order. So in last place <laughs> is Uma, because it's a movie about a horse. I don't particularly like horses, and it was fine. I didn't know what was going on. 
And above that is those who make tomorrow, because even though it doesn't exist, I do think I would have liked it better if it had existed compared to Uma. <laughs> that is true. We had to watch both of these films with our imagination, even though one of them actually had a visual component. Honestly, that film was so badly preserved that you might as well have been watching it with your imagination. <laughs> Look like shit on YouTube. Okay, so then for the actual rankings, I have The Most Beautiful, which I feel bad about, and it was surprising to me. And The Most Beautiful, I think, is a good movie, which is wild. That's at the bottom of the list, but it's kind of boring. Not much happens. It's very simple, whatever. That's the one where if I were to watch any of these again, that would probably be last. Right above that is The Idiot. Uh, they are the only two that <laughs> I know. <laughs> The fact that I could go into it not reading the book, and that you could go into it reading the book, and it winds up in almost the exact same spot. <laughs> yeah, I read Dostoevsky's The Idiot in preparation for this review, as you all know, and that made it worse. Even though it explained every little thing in the movie, I was like, wow, he loved that book so much, he put so much heart into it, and he just fucked it up so bad. Just did such a garbage job trying to make The Idiot into a movie. It was truly just horrendous to watch. It was driving me insane. He would combine characters, remove storylines, add in weird shit. Just horrendous. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's an amazing filmmaker that was not an amazing film so that's why the idiot is second to last though i still would watch again over the most beautiful because it's just more interesting and then above both of those in 29 i have i live in fear i live in fear was fine and that's really all i have to say about it it does not work nearly as well as his other nuclear fear films the makeup is not as good as his later films it's just you know not that interesting of a film then above this, and I will have to give Tim some credit, I do have Scandal next at 28. You, I thought you were going to put it way higher. You were saying, I can't believe it's that low on your list. It was like too higher. It's better than the other three films, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. When I was watching Scandal, I remember enjoying it. The only thing I wrote in my letterbox review is that the Odd Lang sign scene was really good, and it was. That's really all I can remember. I mean, the Christmas tree scene is beautiful. It's a lot of fun. Honestly, I'm almost going to talk myself into putting it higher, so I'll just move on before that happens. Oh, God, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Next is One Wonderful Sunday, and I've been giving all these three stars in my reviews. One Wonderful Sunday is a lovely, fine film. There's that one really weird scene in the middle. I think the ending is really good, but it's just kind of a, a boring film that I wouldn't particularly like. I wouldn't choose this one again over a lot of the other ones. Then just above One Wonderful Sunday is The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tale, which even though it is less of a film than any of the other films, including Uma <laughs> and Those Who Make Tomorrow, which doesn't exist, I still just really enjoyed it. It's one long, pretty awesome scene. I do like the buffoon. I think he's great. I think the later buffoons are also good, and I'm glad this buffoon is a forerunner. Uh, it's just a fun movie, and it has our beautiful boy, Susima Fujita. It's great, and it's my bottom six <laughs> or whatever. Right above that is The Lower Depths. Now, this is kind of offensive to put The Lower Depths so far down, because there's really nothing wrong with it. I just personally didn't enjoy it that much. I do agree that the um, Kahe performance is amazing, but other than that, it's just a pretty dry film. I think he does a great job adapting Maxim Gorky's play. Doesn't mean I enjoy the movie, though. Right above the lower depths is Sanchiro Sugata 1. Oh! And you know what that means. Oh! Oh, my heart. Sanchiro <laughs> Sugata 1 is a solid movie. It's his first movie, and it just features our beautiful boy, which is why it's already so high up on my list compared to the other. Though, in general, it's pretty low. He doesn't really have a full grasp, I think, on the medium yet. It's not nearly as good as the movies that will come later. So that's where Sanchiro Sugata is. Right above that is Dodeska Den. It is good. I mean, I'm saying all of them are good because I don't think he ever truly made a horrible film, but it's kind of a mess. It's very confusing. It is experimental, but I don't think all of the experimenting works. Certainly not nearly as well as his other experimental films. So there's Dodeskaden. Right above Dodeskaden is Song of the Horse, a movie that is better than Dodeskaden. <laughs> <laughs> and also, according to me, better than Senshiro Sugata, The Lower Depths, The Men Who Turn the Tiger Still, One Wonderful Sunday Skin, I Live in Fear of the Idiot, Most Beautiful. Song of the Horse was good. I would watch it again, probably first, compared to a lot of these, but not all. 
I don't blame you for that. Song of Horse is a beautiful vibes film for beautiful vibes. If it wasn't about a horse, it would probably be my top 10. Yeah, I'm surprised your horse prejudice didn't put that below Uma. Yeah, you have no idea how much I'm bringing that in. <laughs> Next is The Quiet Duel, which is the one that I put at three and a half. At this point, these are mostly three and a halves. The Quiet Duel, I think, is one of the earliest films that was like, I've been calling a lot of the other ones good, but I think I would call this Akira Kurosawa good, The Quiet Duel, and all the movies above this are as well, where the ones beneath maybe aren't. It's just a very good movie. It's a great premise, a cool idea. It's not pulled off, I think, quite as well as the others, though I like that it's a small, pared-down film. I do think it's extremely funny that the central climactic monologue is about how we'll never fuck. <laughs> Solid movie. Right above that is Drunken Angel, the movie that came out just before The Quiet Duel. And I think, you know, they're about comparably as good. Drunken Angel introduces Mifune. I think it's a little bit more exciting and a little better. So that's where I put Drunken Angel. And that's four stars. Now we're getting into the four star territory, though it gets a little up and down. So the next one, I think, is the first one that I could actually classify my ranking as a crime. Next is Kage Musha. <laughs> Kage Musha, his 1980 world star Palm Door film, which I did watch and I did really enjoy. But after learning that Ron came right after and was the same movie but better, it really just killed my ability to rank this. I'm like, he just made the same movie more or less twice, even with the same like armies. And so I rank Ron better. I think Ron is better. Kage Musha is great, but it will go down here and it will go right beneath Sanshiro Sugata Part 2. <laughs> I was about to say, you haven't said it yet, and I you're going to say that Kage Mu the, the Kurosawa film I have studied the most, <laughs> and you're going to say it's worse than Sagan Sugata Part 2, a movie that I bet Kurosawa wasn't even on set for every single day. Probably just had an assistant director shooting some scenes. If you gave me a choice between watching Kage Musha or Senshiro Sugata Part 2 again, I would watch Senshiro Sugata Part 2 again every time. And I don't feel bad about it. A movie where a man says a line and then the film cuts to a closer angle and he says the exact same line again because they couldn't even be bothered to edit the movie properly. That's why it's so good. <laughs> the movie fucking rules. It's a fever dream. It's the one that I want to watch more than any other one of these again. It was the most fun to talk about. Sinjiro Sugata 2 is a legendary film that everyone should see. <laughs> Above Sinjiro Sugata Part 2, I put Dreams. Dreams is very good. I like the experimental nature of it, though it just wasn't a strong narrative film like all the ones to come after this in my rankings are. Just a solid movie. I like Dreams. I would watch it again. I have different opinions on Tim than what was good, what was bad. If the Mount Fuji exploding segment wasn't in it, I might have put Dreams higher, but I really don't like that one. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's unequal. Right above Dreams is Rhapsody in August, a beautiful film. I think actually one of his most beautiful films visually and maybe emotionally, except for it's in my opinion, dog shit ending, even though I'm sure it makes sense in Japanese. It's a good movie. I think it tackles the nuclear subject, like Tim said, better than any other movie of his. I do like that Richard Gere is in it, even though it doesn't make sense and is insane. I think that's about where it belongs for me in this ranking. And then above Rhapsody in August is No Regrets for Our Youth. This is the highest I have of his pre-Mufune films, I believe. I like this movie because of the subject matter. I think the performance in it is incredible. One of my favorite of all any of Kurosawa's actors' performances. I just love that it's about the hot leftist Timbo that gets killed by the government. <laughs> and I thought it was really good, and I actually, I would love to see this one again. It was one that I remember fonder than I remember enjoying it at the moment, which is actually the opposite for a lot of things. But it's one that I look back on really fondly. I think No Regrets for Our Youth is great. And then above, No Regrets for Our Youth, and this is another ranking, which isn't that offensive, but uh, some people call kind of wild, is Ikiru. Wow. I think Akiro is really good. It just didn't hit me the way that I wanted it to. And that, for me, can be really tough when I expect something for a movie and don't quite get it. I think I watched it again. Maybe I would. The bifurcated nature really throws the vibe on its head for me. It is one of the few Kurosawa films to make me cry, but just making me cry in one scene wasn't enough. The rank above the cohesiveness and the strong narrative elements of the movies that come above it. So number 13, I think, 
is Stray Dog. Stray Dog is one of the earlier films. This is a little while I'm putting it above Akira, I know, sorry. But Stray Dog was one of the early ones that I remember really enjoying. It is too slow, it is too long, the premise doesn't make any sense, but it's just a really cool movie to watch. All the stuff about the heat wave, the montages, I really enjoyed all of them. I thought they were extremely cool. I want to see it again. I thought Stray Dog was very, very good. And I unorthodoxly put it higher on my list because of this. Just a really, I think for me, it's a hidden gem. Above Stray Dog is The Bad Sleep Well, a movie that was very good. Stray Dog and Bad Sleep Well are both movies that I enjoyed more than most people enjoy them, for whatever reason. The Bad Sleep Well was, I agree, probably Toshiro Mifune's one of his best performances. The ending and some of the scenes with him and his wife. I thought that some of those scenes were really kind of beautiful and magical. Just a very good film overall. I like the contemporary films of his. I think they're great. So that's The Bad Sleep Well. At this point, starting with Bad Sleep Well, we are in my nines, my four and a half stars. I think this puts Sanjuro, my next film, at 11. Great movie. Not quite as good as Yojimbo. Not quite as good, in my opinion, as some of the ones that come next, but still just an absolutely banger film. Right above Sanjuro is Rashomon. I believe that is number 10, which is fair. Rashomon's one that I go back and forth on. The first time I saw it, I was like, what was that? I had no idea what was going on. Then I saw it again in context with the rest of his films, and it really is just an amazing accomplishment. It's, for a lot of people, the top movie, but I think it is where it belongs on my list. I agree with that. We both have it a little lower than a lot of people do. I feel like a lot of the lists I see Rashomon as number two. I don't and have never agreed with that, but it is easily a top ten film. I just think eventually he got better. Yeah, and it's his breakout film, and it deserves to be. Like, I can see why it was the film saw around the world. But so many of his other films are just so good. And so for me, next would be Ron. Ron is an amazing movie. I really liked it. Okay, how do I say this? Despite the fact that it's an amazing movie, uh, by far his biggest film, just this incredible, epic masterpiece. It's just not personally to my tastes compared to some of the other films. I just don't tend to go for these big war films, even though I thought Ron was great. It's really all I have to say about Ron. Amazing movie, but not exactly to my tastes. So right above Ron, and this is also controversial, is Matadayo. Wow. Cool. <laughs> I know. I like Matadayo a lot. You can claim that it was boring and the cat scene takes too long. I acknowledge that mentally while not experiencing it. I thought it was great. I liked it the whole way through. The vibes were just so impeccable. I love that old man so much. Matadayo really hit me in a way that I didn't think it would. This is, once again, more to my personal tastes. Matadayo and The Film Above It are two movies that maybe don't deserve to be this high up, but movies that really touched me personally and I thought were really incredible films. So, but Matadayo is Dursa Uzla. Amazing movie. I love that it's in Russian. I love the colors. I love the story. I love everything about it. I debated making it my second highest film, but then I thought that was a little bit too much of a flight of fancy, so I did not do that. Instead, it is down here. Uh, it would have been made Tim Mad. It would have been pretty funny. <laughs> so Dursa Uzla is a 9, but then above it, my next three films are actually my 10 out of 10s, and then above that, the remaining three are my 9 out of 10s. And this is a little unorthodox, but I have long felt that a lot of 9 out of 10 movies hit me harder than 10 out of 10 movies. I can acknowledge that 10 out of 10 movies are perfect while still thinking I'd rather watch that 9 out of 10 movie again. So next is Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai is an incredible movie, probably is the greatest movie of all time, and I loved it. It was super funny, it was super great, but personally, the movies that are above it on this list for me are movies that I enjoyed more, even if they weren't as good. And that's just how it is. Greatest film of all time, six. And I stand by that completely. The Keepers of the Kurosawa canon can strike me down, because that is my final say. Above Seven Samurai is High and Low, a movie that fucking ruled in every way, was super good. I love the contemporary films. I love them a lot. And that was obviously the best one. I think that's really no contest. High and Low was a movie I didn't know what to go into expecting. Like our friend Sasha said, that might have been the greatest movie I've ever seen. I think High and Low is fantastic from a critique of society perspective, from a filmmaking perspective, just a really wonderful film. It's first color film. <laughs> Maybe that was actually the best use of color. Boy, do you not see it coming. Yeah. That's my top five now. High and Low is number five. 
And then my last 10 out of 10 film, but not my last film, number four, is Yojimbo. Yojimbo is a perfect movie. I agree. Just like I think Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and High and Low are all perfect movies, and they're only perfect movies. Doesn't mean they're my favorites, though. They're just extremely good movies that are flawless and I love, but like they didn't hit me in the same way that the movies that my personal favorites are. So top three. Third on this, and the top three are all incredibly hard to rank, but third and next in the list is Throne of Blood. Respect. When we got to Throne of Blood, I was like, I had no idea what this movie was about. I'd never heard anything about it. I watched it. I was like, it was huge. It was amazing. It was impactful in a way that a lot of his other movies hadn't been at that point. I think it's one of his early, big, incredible films. Seven Samurai feels emotionally big, but it's really about a pretty tight set of characters and situations. Throne of Blood really ups the scale while still being an incredible film. And then in second place, and this is also really tough, and I'm regretting it in the moment, but I'm going to stand by it, is Redbeard. Redbeard is number two, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. I still give it a 9 out of 10. I honestly don't remember why, but that's what it's rated on Letterboxd. <laughs> really, just truly an incredible film. It is a bit slower than some of the other ones. It's a bit more muted because it is, you know, it's a deeply human film, which I think is one of Akira Kurosawa's best qualities, is bringing the sheer force of humanity to his films. And so for that reason, I put Redbeard at number two. Yeah, the only reason it's at number four for me is because it's not as tight as Yojimbo, Ron, and Seven Samurai. There is, you know, like a really long detour with another character and all that. But it's all such great stuff that it's still a perfect movie for me. And again, my personal favorite. But I'm like, eh, I have to say that one might be better than another. Yeah. And because I have no rules on my list, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why Redbeard is above those other ones. Even though it's not a 10 out of 10, it's a 9 out of 10. It's above the three 10 out of 10s that I put. And then, finally, the movie that I watched and I was like, that was amazing, is The Hidden Fortress. It is my number one out of 31 films. The Hidden Fortress was incredible. From the very first shot, I was like, this is fucking insane. I love it so much. The first shot, I think, is just crisp. But even then, it got me engaged. It's a huge film. It's extremely funny. Probably one of the funniest films I've ever seen. And I'll stand by that. It's a really, really wonderful film. It's this huge, grand epic. I love it so much. The Hidden Fortress is my number one Kurosawa film. And that closes out my ranking. Thank you for listening. Truthfully, the best Kurosawa film is Star Wars. Best Kurosawa film. It's not Akira Kurosawa's fault that that happened, and I stand by my rank. It's not because I didn't really see the Star Wars thing when I was watching it, outside of the two buffoons being RDD2 and C3PO. That was obvious. Yeah, in retrospect, you're like, oh, I see every single Star Wars element now. And there's plenty of other ones that you could hear us talk about on a full movie commentary bonus episode that we released a couple weeks ago. Yeah, have fun enjoying that. Yeah, that is my ranking. Hidden Fortress at number one. And a lot of uh, controversial things down the line that you can absolutely comment on, drag me for, roast me, I don't care, doesn't affect me. I'm a scientist with a background art history. <laughs> this is all ephemeral to me. And if you want to roast us and see what we're going to be watching post-podcast, you can find me on Letterboxd at Timothy Amatuli. I don't use Twitter because it's a scourge upon the planet. That is true. And for that reason, you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at, at CoolGeese. Cool Geese. It is my Twitter name. It's also my letterbox name. It's a photo of Garfield. Yeah, I believe right now it's Garfield as the Joker. It is Garfield as the Joker on his phone, which is what I am at all times every day. <laughs> and ooh, after so many weeks, that's we, we've done it. That's the podcast. I have been looking forward to making this episode and this list for so long. And now, you know what? I'm never going to be able to feel like I can rank any of these other movies differently because I'm on tape saying it. Yeah, your ranking's locked in. Mine's a bunch of bullshit ephemerality that I personally enjoyed and could change any time. You are locked in for life. <laughs> yeah. That's uh... Uh, the power of being a less informed, <laughs> less authoritative voice. <laughs> 
Yeah, so as we close out, a special thanks again to Ellie Conklin for mm-hmm. creating our cover art, Joe Barbieri for our intro-outro music, everyone that we know and mostly don't know that has reached out and said how much they enjoy the podcast. Yep. Uh, we've gotten some really good engagement for some people. We always really appreciate Absolutely. all the support. Helps, all the engagement. helps me see the light at the end of these very, very long editing sessions. Yeah. Keep in mind, listener, this was an extremely painful and difficult process for Tim. It was not for me. I had a great time and I was very happy to be involved. <laughs> Tim doing the editing basically all by himself, basically <laughs> nearly died over the past year, but we got through it. We're coming out the other end. Hey, quite literally, didn't we all? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> this is our pandemic project. Really hoping the pandemic would have been over by the time that we finished oh, this. Oh yeah, we had no and, idea uh, when we started in April. No surprise that it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, but uh, still, we're at the end of the tunnel at this, and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel for that. Kind of. Yeah. Chris, most of all, thank you. Thank you so much for indulging in my idiotic idea where I get to sound smart. <laughs> yep, in your quixotic adventure. <laughs> Thank you so much for including me. I remember you telling me this, and I thought, oh, I'm just the right kind of person to be second chair on the Sakura Kurosawa podcast, and I'm really glad that I got to do it. It was a wonderful experience. I recommend to all listeners, if you can, watch all of his movies. It was truly worth it. One of a kind experience. Even if it's not him, watching a director's movies from start to finish, I think, is the best way to go through a person's work. Yeah, that's the first time I've done that. I feel like you do form a really personal connection with the director and you get to see how they evolve as a person and you see the film more as a piece of art rather than a thing that was made. I said in our first episode, I think Akira Kurosawa is the greatest director that ever lived. It's hard to really definitively ever say that. I did have a couple of films of his that I had as 10 out of 10s that wound up becoming 9 out of 10s, which was disappointing, but I also had some go from 9 out of 10s to 10 out of 10s. There's a lot of shifting around of some numbers in context. That's part of living life and experiencing art. That's okay. 9 out of 10 films are better. One number that definitely doesn't lie is on Letterboxd. In the Letterboxd Top 250, Akira Kurosawa is the director with the most films, with eight films in the Top 250, beating out Igmar Bergman, who has seven. Hell yeah. And he deserves it. Overall, my main thoughts about the reason I think Kurosawa is so great is just We've talked for who knows how many hours about all the different techniques that he does. The reason I could say why I would call him the best director ever is because he's able to blend art and entertainment so well. Like no other. There's so much artistry to these films, but so many of them are so enjoyable. Directors like Bergman make incredible, beautiful pictures, but they aren't fun. Yeah, art films that are art and they're not entertainment. Not even a little. Yeah, these are films that are art and are entertainment. Absolutely, 100%. It is one of like the defining features of his movies. I feel like he invented the blockbuster, essentially, with the way like Yojimbo and The Hidden Fortress, movies that could be these huge, impactful, good films that are also funny and enjoyable and reach a mass audience. He was able to make a lot of money moving people. That's tough. That's real tough. No artist is perfect. I think the main Kurosawa criticism is the idiot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> does come from the fact that he doesn't make a lot of movies featuring women. Yeah, that is a tough part of his canon. It's a fair hit. It is absolutely a fair hit. And it's a shame because whenever he did do it, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah, it's not like he has bad female characters. It's not like misogynistic portrayals of women, usually. It's not that they're done in bad spirits. It's usually more that they're absent. Yeah, definitely. It's by omission. It is totally a fair criticism. I do think it comes with the territory of a lot of these films being samurai films. 
the subject matter that he deals with in a patriarchal society necessarily is built to exclude women. So it's a bit of a byproduct, but he could have done more for that. At the end of the day, he's a dude's rock filmmaker. He is absolutely a dude's rock filmmaker. He is the dude's rock filmmaker. <laughs> That's my final thought on Akira Kurosawa, is that he is the dude's rock filmmaker of all time. <laughs> As evidenced from the very beginning of Century Sagata all the way to the very end of Matadayo. Two of the most dude's rock films of all time. <laughs> What a king. I love him very much. I'm very happy to have been involved in this project. And I'm very happy to have had you. I'm happy to have so many recorded conversations with one of my best friends. I don't know if we'll ever talk again. Absolutely not. Listener, if you're listening to this years after it was published, we have never spoken to each other since. Don't mention one to the other. It'll cause a mental breakdown of immense pain. Yeah, it will cause immense psychic damage. But thank you so much for listening. We're Sanchez, boys. And I'm Chris Cote. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Matadayo, but uh, no, I'm I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm I can't wait to be finished, even though it makes me sad. Thank you all for listening to Sanchiro's Boys. <laughs> <laughs>